Hello, welcome to the Wiley Connected podcast. I'm Dwayne Poza, a partner here at Wiley, focused on artificial intelligence, AI, and tech policy. I'm joined by my colleague, Jackie Ruff, who also works in these areas, particularly in the international arena. And we are very excited to be joined today by Peter Fatelnig to talk about the latest developments at the European Commission's AI, data, and digital strategies. Uh, Peter is Minister Counselor for Digital Economy Policies at the Delegation of the European Union to the United States residing in D.C. since March of 2018. He has a distinguished career as a senior manager at the European Commission for 20-plus years since 1998. Before coming to Washington, he managed the team leading Europe's new internet policy and investment initiative, the Next Generation Internet. So I can't think of a better person to have on hand to talk about Wednesday's announcements on the Commission's AI, data, and digital strategies, which will shape the Commission's policy and its regulatory approach and affect companies around the world. Thanks again for joining us. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So by way of context, could you tell us just a bit more about your role here in DC and also the announcements coming out of the European Union this week? The delegation of the European to the United States manages the relationship between the European Union and the US. That's our primary task here. And the EU has the largest single digital market worldwide. And not surprisingly, it's also now kind of becoming a leader in putting out the guardrails and the rules we need for driving forward that digital single market in Europe. I think what you have seen here is uh, yesterday is a response to what the president, Ursula von der Leyen, has announced in her political guidelines last summer. She already said that within 100 days, there should be a legislative approach coming out for how we deal with artificial intelligence in the future. And that's what we see here. It's true that the package coming out was actually a bit richer. So yesterday we have seen not only the white paper on artificial intelligence, we have also seen a strategy for the entire mandate of the commission in terms of digital priorities. And on top of it, there was a very, very interesting strategy, a European data strategy coming out. So a rich package of information. Right. And we're still um, digesting it. So I thought we could talk about AI first. There have been multiple versions of the AI white paper. Um, there was a white paper released, and we're recording this on Thursday, Wednesday, yesterday, which will be out for comment for a period of time. This follows some other, much other activity the commission has done on AI. There's a high-level experts group. The commission collaborated on ethics guidelines for trustworthy AI. There's a compliance assessment list. I want to get your sense of how all these things fit together and what we can expect to see coming out of the white paper over the next few months. When I read the paper yesterday, and, and in fact, it was the first time that that paper came out because I prefer not to comment on earlier versions or what we may have seen or not have seen. But the things which came to my mind was, this is evidence-based. That's a solid piece of paper. And the language and the proposals in there seem to be proportionate, and clearly it's a risk-based approach. So it's not covering all types of AI. It's going after certain types, and that's quite well explained what the issues are and how we possibly could address them. And it's a white paper at the same time, so it doesn't come out straight away with the legislative proposal, which I presume the Commission could have done. But now they say, well, why don't we just pull everything together we know and, and go out and consult again with all the stakeholders until 19th of May, as you said, there is time to come back. I think what you see as well in this proposal is there's a clear understanding of how important AI is that the sort of innovation it can enable, the new applications, the new services 
how it will transform perhaps the entire society and economy as one of these basic technologies underpinning so many solutions. So you see here an approach also focusing on that. You talked a little bit about the risk assessment. There are parts of the white paper that talk about specific kinds of requirements for high-risk AI systems. What's your sense of what a high-risk AI system would be and what those sort of requirements would look like? Mm -hmm. I've followed that conversation before, that essentially where you say, well, we understand there may be AI applications where no rules are necessary. If it's, I don't know, a doctor scheduling system, so what if an appointment goes wrong or it's not perfect? So there are many things we can rule out. Why should we do or be concerned with those type of applications. Now then, how do you qualify the others? And that has been a big point of the conversation of the last two years. How do you characterize that? How can you put that on paper that you can put a rule book around it? And I think the approach taken here is quite interesting. So it's like a formula. It has two components. It's an A and B. And only if A and B are in place, an action has to take place. So the A is that the application needs to be in sectors which are inherently considered as a higher risk. For instance, financial transactions or specific healthcare type of applications. But even that is not enough. And in there, you need to have an application. That's the B of the formula. If the application has a huge impact, like in, in financial transaction, your mortgage is denied or, or it has legal implications on you, then maybe rules should apply. So probably at the end of the day, it will apply only to a very reduced set of AI application. And transportation, is that another one of the potential sectors that could be high risk? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. The paper lists a series of those. So probably in, in terms of sectors, it may actually be quite wide. I agree to that. But in terms of impact, that's the developer or the deployer who's done to decide, does it have that impact? And then a rule set will apply. And are those the kind of questions that the commission is seeking feedback on what kind of sector should be in this high-risk category as part of this consultation process? Now, the consultation process is on the entire paper. So is the narrative right? Are the perceptions sort of understandable or are those the right perception we are having? Is there something we are missing out? So it's certainly going on the overall narrative, but then also specific because the, the regulation is supposed to name those sectors. So if you name them, then you, know, you again have a definition question and then something might be in, something might be out of the sectors. So relatedly, what about the low-risk applications? You suggested that maybe for low-risk AI, you might not need regulation. There's some discussion of a voluntary labeling approach in the, in the white paper. What's your sense of where that's headed and the right approach for the low-risk AI applications? You know, Brian, I think that the interesting question is, you know, how can a consumer, when he or she buys a product, get a sense of what he or she is buying? You know, that issue of, of quality and trust. Why do people buy certain types of cars or certain types of any product? Because they perceive that there's a certain quality related to it, a certain trust into this product. So how can we make quality and trust in digital technology is more visible? That's a hard question. We have been grappling in many areas and then labeling is not a new concept in industry at all. But bringing it to this domain is not so easy. And yet here we see an attempt to say, well, 
maybe industry can get together, develop themselves a couple of criteria which perhaps reflect or are similar to what the regulation is saying, apply them themselves, and then label those products. So when I take something off the shelf, I then can see, hmm, makes kind of more sense maybe than the other one. And that's also a prime feature of competitive markets. We would like to create competitive markets. Products need to compete on there. And we need to put it back criteria on which they can compete. And labeling is one of that. One of the things that I'm interested in is the relationship between the guidelines that exist and were the subject of a piloting on the risk assessment list. Relationship between that work that's already been done, considerable work, it does give some guidance, as guidelines would, to businesses that are in the market as to what they should be doing, what the expectations are, and eventually what might be the content of regulation. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit about next steps on the guidelines there was some material in the white paper about having received, I think it was 350 responses of testing out that impact assessment list. And uh, could you talk to us a little bit about that? In that question, I'm also interested in the scope of applicability, because I believe these are to apply to the entire life cycle of AI, from its development to its use. So. Um, what are your thoughts on those? There's a lot of questions. In I know, one that's go. too many <laughs> so, questions. So let's, let's maybe start decomposing the question and yeah. I, I hope I remember <laughs> then all the elements. It is true, and I think what you point is that the European Commission, the work with the high-level group has been referred to. There is an AI action plan with the member states already in places. There's a lot of work ongoing. The last two years have been a very intensive period in Europe to look into what should we be doing? How should we be doing it? And how can we sort of make more of that, the financing element to this? The high-level group indeed last spring published the final version or an interim version of its ethical guidelines for a trustworthy AI. And immediately with it, it came an assessment list, a short sort of almost tick box type of, of list to be given to developers to try to develop an AI based on a number of those principles. 350 organizations have been testing that. And in the assessment, and when they come back, they overwhelmingly are saying that this is helpful for the companies to build competences within the organization, to create a better product and reduce the risk associated with the deployment of this artificial intelligence. So the feedback is very good. It's also not surprising Developers today are used to work with rule books, and there is privacy by design, there is a security by design. So it's not surprising that you weave in another kind of checklists AI by design. So that seems to be certainly a quite interesting approach to reduce the risk inherent to a technology. And it's not the first time we deal with risky technologies. Think about all the cybersecurity stuff. So we know how to deal with it. It's just we need to kind of build a sensible system and get going on that. Another point in your question is sort of who is responsible? Let me make an analogy here. For creating a safe traffic, it's useful to have a safe car and a safe driver. If it's just a safe car and a reckless driver, you wouldn't be creating safe traffic. So here again, we're in a situation that probably along the value chain, everybody has to carry a bit of responsibility. Certainly, you have to start with a safe product, sort of the safe car, 
our obligations on the developer on, on how to develop that in a responsible way. But the deployer, the one using this technology, also will have obligations to deploy it in a in a fashion that is safe and sound. Thank you. You're doing a great job at unpacking my overly long question. <laughs> it did say, if I'm remembering it correctly, that the high-level expert group, which I believe continues to exist, right? Yes. That they yes. will, during this next period, be reflecting on some of the material that came out of that testing of the list and may do some updating of the guidelines by June. So there'll be two tracks, the consultation and that would be a second track of work. That so you see, first I forgot some parts of your questions and the other <laughs> element is you know the answer anyway. It is, but it is true and perhaps it's a good approach. You know, not, nothing is kind of in that sense perfect. So they go back to the drawing board, see what needs to be modified. And as you have said by June, there should be a next version of ethical guidelines for trustworthy AI. Right. So it's an iterative process. It's working as you're getting more and more evidence in the evidence-based approach. You know, and perhaps in our understanding of AI, we are where we have been on privacy in the 1980s, you know, where we thought we understand everything. We know exactly what to do. And a lot of rulemaking has come out in the 1980s, but it was early days. So maybe down the road, another 30 years, there will be more or different type of understanding coming and rules necessary to drive that. I think there is also some discussion coming out of the feedback to the experts group that transparency, traceability, and human oversight are some areas where there might be the need for additional legislation or regulation to fill sort of the regulatory gaps that might apply to AI. Is that right? And can you talk a little bit more about those concepts and how they fit in? The paper in itself dives quite deep on the question of safety. What is it? existing legislation on safety how does that already apply and what are the gaps in there and i'm not entirely sure uh, the paper is, is at least to me very clear on what the gaps are in terms of the safety so we know a number of regulations existing regulations obviously continue applying also to those tools but for instance product safety directive the european product safety directive is only for for products not for services and it's still an unsolved question of how this applies to, to software services. So we see that this is almost a side question, but a very important side question. Because if it were to apply, then maybe there's less need to cover it here. So, so there are these sort of side questions which need to be shaking out over the next few months to understand that. It's not only the European Union, in fact, who is an actor here. So it's the member states because it's a directive. There's also court decisions going around that precedent set already. So I think it's, it's actually a quite complex situation. Now, what is true that uh, human oversight is going to be or is suggested to be one of the components of, for high-risk AI applications. But yet again, there are a couple of ideas in the white paper how this could be done. That doesn't necessarily mean that you have an AI and a human process where a company may say, well, why do we need double the thing, you know? So it could be fairly easy, maybe in that sense. It could be a monitoring type of activities. So there could be sampling processes running on it. It could be exposed compared to ex ante approval of decisions of the AI. So I think we can find a number of business processes which 
where the AI will do the most of the job, but the human oversight, the behavior humans have, will then safeguard this, this quality of the outcoming service. One issue that has come up repeatedly in the US and in Europe is the use of facial recognition technology, particularly remote facial identification. So not one-to-one identification matching, but use of facial recognition to in public spaces, for example. Can you talk a little bit about what the white paper's approach to that specific example of the way AI could be used is and where that's headed? This is where this conversation is going to get interesting. And, and I hope our listeners will weigh in on their own into this uh, with comments to the consultation. I would say even uh, more interesting. <laughs> now, right now, facial recognition in Europe is deployed under very, very strict conditions. So it's essentially limited to law enforcement. And even there, it has to be proportionate. And for good reason. So there, there is no facial recognition being deployed in, in terms of doorbell cameras, just scanning people walking by. All of that doesn't exist. It, it would be an intrusion to privacy and therefore it's not allowed. But that shouldn't stop us from thinking about it. You know, I think there's a very, very clear-cut situation today, but maybe in the future we, we would like this technology also to help in, in this way. What the consultation does, it's essentially opening up only a conversation. So it's not suggesting that this or that should be done. It's recognizing the power of artificial intelligence in recognizing faces. So how can we use that for the best of society and the economy? And it's an open, it's an open conversation. Equally, this morning I have heard that the University of California in Los Angeles, for instance, is banning facial recognition from their campus. Because again, the tests have shown that it's kind of not really functioning that well. So unless we have an understanding why we want to do it, and is it working in a safe way, do we get a benefit as a society or business out of that? We should continue talking about it and discussing. And I think this is a very, very complicated conversation because people will weigh in from the dignity side, from the fundamental rights side. There will be law enforcement recognizing all this potential of making their work easier. There will be a political side into this because it's a high-profile conversation. And it's going to be quite interesting times of, of how this will be shaking out. But the interesting point here is, can we build something of a transatlantic conversation in here? Because we haven't spoken so much yet of the alignment between the European Union and the United States or, or the non-alignment in the one or other part. But this is something where we both want to move forward with the conversation and where both sides of the Atlantic understand very well the potential and all their ideas, but what are the choices we want to make? And I think there is clear scope for making choices in a tandem way that, that AI systems developed here in the United States can be deployed in Europe and vice versa. It is clear to some extent in the document that certain things would be automatically applicable. For example, if it's a U.S.-based company that is providing services or creating AI that is being used in Europe, then the expectation of being in compliance with the European rules would clearly apply. Is that right? Yes, but I'm not sure if that's a leading question in that sense that the paper is, has been published by the European Commission. So it aims to put forward the ideas applicable within the European Union. I think there is no ambition that you say, well, the rules we set should be the rules the rest of the world has to follow. 
that may or may not happen, but is irrelevant to a certain extent. So it's about the digital single market. How do we make the life for business and citizens in Europe better? Now, that obviously necessitates that everybody is deploying services on that market will have to comply those rules. As I said, Europe's a free economy. Others are welcome to bring in their products and services, but they will have to apply to the local standards. But I think the interesting question perhaps is how much inward looking is this white paper? Is it just sort of Europe as a fortress and then we are going to do that and the rest may do something different? Or to which degree can it be something which engages in a broader debate? Because obviously we have no interest of other countries or other parts of the world developing widely different systems because also at the same time Europe would like to export technology into into other markets. So there is always this trade-off between you know, the standards we, start, we set up for ourselves will, will drive the narrative we take abroad and when we discuss with others. Uh, so you can assume that in trade conversations, it's like if there are barriers in this type of technology, that we would rise those barriers and say, well, can we do something about it? I agree. There are a number of places in this document and in the digital strategy and data strategy documents, which hopefully we can spend a few minutes on, a number of places where the sentiment that you expressed earlier about transatlantic uh, would fit very well in the sense of trying to figure out ways to have compatibility, uh, perhaps look especially to nations that tend to share the same types of values that Europe does, that would speak to a transatlantic kind of uh, collaboration around these things. I highlighted the applicability potentially uh, for businesses in the U.S. that are selling into Europe, etc., because I think that's important for listeners to keep in mind uh, as to what they may have at stake and the importance of engaging in the consultation and monitoring all of this. And it's also a reason to create that collaboration among basically aligned uh, regions of the world. So having said all that and looking forward to that sort of uh, interaction between governments and businesses on both sides of the Atlantic, I think it's also important to understand what this may be doing to cross-border data flows between the regions. And this, I suppose, takes us to the data strategy question, because data strategy is talking in part about creating larger databases, sources of data that's so very important economically. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit maybe about the data strategy at this point or to illuminate the cross-border nature of it. Now, Jackie, but let me go back. I think people shouldn't misunderstand that there are no rules here in the United States on AI. So certainly there's quite a rule book on on how to develop safe technology also here, not surprisingly. I mean, it's it's a country which shares um, most of of the fundamental values with the European Union. So the rule book hasn't developed in a widely different way. Also recently, the White House has issued a number of principles developers and deployers of artificial intelligence should be following. Now, 
they, they are very, very similar to what other regions of the world develop in this space. So we don't see, I think, a, a widely different way of things being done here. It may be different what becomes legislation and, and the way they become applicable. But for a company, it probably doesn't matter sort of what the rule book, which way it comes to you, as long as it's a similar rule book or the same rule book. And that, I think, I see good scope for making that happen. And I think we should be. We should be. Because, uh, frankly speaking, if we talk, there are not that many countries out there who share the, the fundamental values of the European Union and the United States exactly the same way. And, and I think getting together here and building something of a common market for AI will certainly set for both of us better opportunities for, for selling worldwide and a global market for AI. Now, on your data strategy. Yeah, fantastic piece of document. I can highly recommend all listeners to dive into it. It's uh, since, I think the last data strategy is four or five years old, and a lot has happened in the meantime. So the paper captures very well all these developments. One thing we have to quickly understand in the data strategy is it's probably much more about non-personal data than personal data. Because the personal data strategy is called GDPR. And that's sort of done, dusted. It's on the book since two years. It is working. And, and that's a data space which is very well regulated right now. Now with turning the attention to the non-personal data space, you get a couple of, of characteristics such as there's no limit in terms of non-personal data, in terms of quantity. You can have billions of IoT devices. The number of humans is very limited. I mean, we know pretty much how many there are and how much data they can produce, and this is not going to change that much in the future. But the non-personal data space, when all this digital society, this IoT, these cars driving around, when all of them start producing these huge quantities of data, how do we deal with those? And how can we make use of them? We have run studies which suggest that data very often is collected only for one purpose, and then in most of the cases, not even used once. So we're collecting a lot of data, but we're not using it. We're not generating the potential or the positive impact this data could have. So how can we make that happen? And we talk about business data. We talk about government data. We talk about research data. We talk about healthcare data. There's a lot of that out already, and we're actually not good in using it. That's something we have to be honest. So all these investments in open data are excellent. But what are the services running on it? How do you deal with mixed type data sets? How can you actually do that? So the paper identifies certainly all the challenges. I'm not sure if it's right now the time to go into saying, okay, this, 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 and this is going to happen. It proposes a couple of actions. Clear one of the actions is, one of the main actions is interoperability and portability, which addresses the issue of data just not being available. If you want to work on certain data, well, it takes you ages to find them. And then even if you find them, you have to, to sign a contract. That's not a good thing to do. You know, It needs to be much more fluid in finding data, accessing them, using them under clear conditions. Also to take away the hesitation business has to open up the, the data they are holding and making them available on a business-to-business -business data market. So it's a broader issue of data governance, really. It and is. Ties in a lot of, to one of the advantages of AI is it gives the ability to handle and use these large data sets in ways that you otherwise would not be able to do. Yeah. 
it goes hand in hand, as you right. say. I think you need a data strategy if, if you want an AI to work. We talked a little bit about the transatlantic dialogue, and I'm interested in hearing a bit more about the kinds of things that were most useful, you think, to hear during the consultation and beyond from American companies who are innovating in AI and generally using large data sets in ways um, to sort of further this dialogue and, as you were talking about, uh, try to approach the overall regulatory framework or the sort of framework of expectations and standards development in a way that's sort of cooperative across the European US. The white paper is a great document. So I think in that sense, it's rich and it's a real treasure trove for our data aficionados we have out there. So it's, it's something for widespread consumption and reading. This is the first thing. It's not targeted only to specialists and people who have a very thorough understanding of AI. No, it goes to all stakeholders, and that includes those representing society and those representing fundamental rights and, and other parts of the stakeholder community. So it's not only engineers who should comment on that. And the comments we expect are of the more general nature. Are we going in the right direction? Are we seeing this kind of forecasting we are doing of how society and economy should be working? Is that the correct direction? That's because it's hard. Predicting the future is hard, notoriously, as we all know. So this would be a very helpful approach. From uh, the US industry side, it would be interesting to see a conversation which is more specific and concrete. As we have seen, you know, just rejecting rules per se will, is, is a non-useful input in that sense. It may be a valid point and a valid position, but it's not contributing to the conversation very much. So we would be interested to see more sort of on the specific rules, on the suggestions of what are the obligations on developers, what are the obligations on deployers. Do you think we are missing something? Is there something we are not understanding correctly here? How could we work on definitions? As soon as you put out legislation, a large chapter will be about definitions. So can we work on that? Do we have a common understanding on those definitions when we use certain terms in there? So we would be really happy to work with our colleagues here in the United States. And I see myself here as a sort of as the explainer in chief for many of these these narratives to work with the community and see, okay, what can we do? How can we do that? And I'm sure this is going to work out very fine. Yeah, that's very interesting, especially the distinction between developers and deployers, I think is important to unpack and the different obligations you have from the folks who are developing the software who are often not going to be the actual operators, um, which raise different liability questions, but also seems to me benefits from having input from those in the ecosystem as to what they're in the best position to do in terms of the regulatory approach. And the proof will be in doing it. So I think the legislation cannot be the end point. It's the starting point of, of this. So, so immediately, I think, if firms start applying that, getting feedback, you know, test driving some of those elements, discussing it with their developers, that's really valuable input we can get back. And because we want to make it work, that's the, the impact is what we are after, not necessarily a legislative action. There was a place in the white paper that did talk more about international cooperation going beyond transatlantic, which will be a very fruitful area, I'm sure. And there was a statement about international objectives, including 
supporting upward regulatory convergence, accessing key resources, including data, and creating a level playing field. Can you elaborate on these as to what those might mean? In the international chapter, I think what you see here is a belief that you know, Europe does not operate in a vacuum. There is the rest of the world around it. However, the white paper gives this flavor of a European approach and uh, approach beneficial for the safe deployment of AI. So it's kind of inward looking. Yes, these are the rules for us, but how do we connect those rules to the rest of the world? So what is the rest of the world? One line of the rest of the world is certainly multilateral fora. They are very effective mechanism to transport a narrative and to have conversations. So the OECD probably is a no-brainer given all the work on artificial intelligence and what countries already came together around a common set of principles. Similar is the G20. Not dissimilar is the United Nations. And on it goes on this multilateral fora where we can have perhaps with a small input with quite a big impact. And then there comes a conversation with like-minded country. Uh, so this is also where we expect that that goes quite easy. There are like-minded countries, I think we talked about the US, Japan, Australia, and many other countries around the world who share similar fundamental values, a similar approach to digital technology and to privacy, and who have similar rules or conversations ongoing already. And this is something where we talk essentially about, can we lower the barriers? Can we lower the barriers of deployment? I don't want to use or introduce a new term here, but one could sort of think about adequacy. We also... We all know adequacy from the GDPR, where recognition of similar legal regimes, you could think here as well, you know, it doesn't need to be exactly the same, but it could be a similar legal regime providing the same, the same assurances or the same impact. And can we have that conversation with like-minded country to create a space of safe development and deployment of AI? And I said EU is the most open and free market. Uh, those who follow the rules are welcome, but certainly... We will then monitor as well all the rest of AI developments around the world. And as we would like to take our narrative abroad, we will take that then also in conversations with other countries. And we'll have to see how that goes. I'm not, I don't need to be optimistic or pessimistic here, but trade conversations can be hard. And these days it's particularly not very easy. But we're quite successful in, in these conversations around the world. And we'll take that as part of the narrative saying, what is here about data flows? deploying uh, safe artificial intelligence. On that point, I noticed in the digital strategy paper, the, I think the third paper, that there was an interesting point about the commissions wanting to continue to address unjustified restrictions for European companies in third countries, such as data localization requirements. So that might be an issue where companies in Europe, companies in the U.S., would have very similar interests with respect to problems in some third countries. That might be an interesting area of collaboration as set out in that strategy paper. I think that's a very good point you're raising here. And actually, it's like when you have trade conversations with, between two countries, I mean, historically, you were talking about goods. You know, how many bicycles are you selling in my markets and how many sewing machines I'm selling on your market. So it was this kind of physical products. Now that is shifting. That's radically shifted or perhaps, perhaps has shifted already and we just didn't notice it. So today trade is very much digital trade. So it's underpinned by those data flows. Now 
what one action we are launching as well as part of the European data strategy is, is basically research and understanding those data flows. We have very little information on that. What's the category? What's the value? Right now, we only know volume, but volume is a mesh of what? Mesh of quality? Well, not sure. So we don't understand. We don't understand how many digital bicycles are arriving in a port somewhere because there is no port and there is no bicycle. It's very important to understand sort of how these data flows and the national data flows, how they link to value, what the barriers in there are to turn a trade conversation from the physical goods into the digital services, trade on digital services and understanding how that functions, what the barriers are, and then add that to a trade conversation. We're not yet there. I think the work we have been or we would like to launch there will help us understand that to have the right tools and narrative and definitions available for such a conversation. But then it will go into this that right now it's only data localization. We can say, well, if you hold data on your territory, it's maybe not good because I cannot process that. That's a very important element, but it's just one thin sliver of probably much bigger issue we should be talking about in the future. So to build on the data strategy, part of the task will be understanding what kind of data is flowing between countries and cross borders in order to get a sense of where to go with the strategy. Yeah. yeah, you can think about, is it consumer data? Is it right. citizen data? Is it open data? Is it business data? Is it business data within multinational or, or within different types of businesses? And what is the value attached to that? Because uh, trade experts like to kind of talk about specific product categories and the value attached to that. So maybe we have to change that narrative. I don't know. But right now we, we are launching this research initiative to try to understand, for, at least from a European perspective, what's the digital trade with the rest of the world. Very interesting discussion. So we appreciate all the time. We're almost out. I always like to ask, what should I have asked you and I didn't? I'll give you one chance or a number of chances to tell us what else is on your mind and what else you think is important for our listeners. Yeah. Now, yesterday, we all have been reading those three documents. And I think the conversation today captured quite a few of the very interesting elements in there. What in this conversation we haven't, so we dived quickly deep into various issues. What we perhaps haven't spoken so much about is the relation, the transatlantic relationship. We love to focus on details, that's sort of human nature perhaps, and, and it's much more interesting to have a conversation about things we disagree than on things we agree. So very often the conversation then goes into this disagreement of small elements. And I always want to come back saying, you know, like in an old couple, there are maybe 80% you agree upon and 20% you don't agree. I think one should cherish sometimes the 80% you agree upon. And I think here with artificial intelligence, we have a high, a very high degree of common thinking. Uh, and if it were not for sort of certain disagreements, we'd probably get along very well on that. Uh, if I think the principles the White House has been issuing in January... People here, as when I read them, and people back home said, "Oh gosh, I mean, come on, that's that's great. I mean, that's such a great starting point for all these conversations. Uh, where's the problem?" So, and that's something we're turning it into a positive agenda, and we have a great opportunity here. Thank you. Well, thank you, Peter Fatelnik. Thanks again for coming. Great to have you. Pleasure. Right. Thank you. Yes.